to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. In a tribute to Dr. Hendricks, Chuck Swindoll writes, No man has meant more to me in my adult life than Dr. Howard G. Hendricks, whom all of us know simply as Prof. Today, Howard Hendricks presents the question, How big is your God? The following material is copywritten by and provided courtesy of the Moody Bible Institute. turn with me tonight to our Father's Word, as found in the Gospel by Mark. I want to plug into the narrative at verse 31 of chapter 4 of Mark's Gospel. A.W. Tozer said it so succinctly, what comes into your mind when you think of God? is the most important thing about you. That's why I constantly say to my students, make sure that the size of your God is the size of who he really is to you. The size of your God will determine not only your life and ministry, but also your theology. Big God, big salvation. Little God, little salvation. I'm not really sure, but I'm working at it and I hope. I'll make the grade. Big God, big sin. Little God, little sin. It's not so bad. He'll certainly forget it. Voltaire, the famous French agnostic and author, once quipped, God created us in his own image, and man returned the favor. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, in my judgment, confirm Voltaire's statement. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of an immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served, created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Let me ask you tonight, 
What is your image of God like? Is it one who needs you more than you need him? Is it a user-friendly God? A cosmic bellboy who is always accessible to you when you call? Is he one who elicits no fear? Or is he the God who's steeped in biblical soil and before whom we stand in awe? In John chapter 1, the writer says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we beheld his glory, the glory is of the Father, full of grace and truth. The longer you look at Jesus, the more you will understand the question of our theme, who is God? And I want to take a long look at Jesus tonight, the one who is fully man, but fully God, who said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I and the Father are one. And may I remind you that the life of Christ is the life that the Holy Spirit is committed to reproduce in your life and in mine. So if you'll turn to the passage in Mark chapter 4, let's take a moment just to get the story before us. Many of you know it. This is what we read. That day when evening came, He said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along, just as he was in the boat. No preparation. There were also other boats with him who could confirm the incident. And a furious squall came up and the waves broke open the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the storm, sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we perish? May I remind you, this is the voice of a collection of professional fishermen. They had seen that sea grow tempest in a short period of time, remember. And those cool airs would come over the mountains and the ravines would act like funnels to drive the wind on that storm. And in a relatively short time, even to this day, if you have ever been there and seen it, you will see a tempestuous sea in a short period of time. And so Jesus got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Be still! Quiet! And the text says, Then the wind died down, 
and it was completely calm. My friend, they were seeing a twofold miracle. Not only the miracle of the calming of the storm, but the miracle of the calming of the water. If you have ever been on a ship in a severe course, you understand that the water does not become calm immediately after the storm subsides. It's often hours and sometimes days before it becomes calm again. But this is the work of the supernatural. And so he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And they were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. He's able to control what we, a group of professionals, cannot control. Let's examine the lessons from this passage of Scripture. There are three seminal answers to three seminal questions that are raised in the passage. Number one, always listen to what God says and obey it. That's an answer to the question, what did Christ say? They had just completed listening to the world's greatest teacher teach for all day long the basic theme of which was he that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Be careful how you hear. You need to understand that the hardest lesson to teach an individual is how to listen. It's a piece of cake to teach a person how to speak. But how to listen is very difficult. The Harvard Business Review some time ago had an interesting study in which they said 70% of an executive's time is spent listening. The one skill for which he receives no training. Jesus said, let's go to the other side. But they thought, he said, let's go to the middle of the lake and drown. (laughs) And that's why they said, don't you even care that we are in the process of perishing? At least you could get up and help to bail out. They took an exam. And they flunked it. Got the blue book back with a great big F on it, which did not stand for faith. (laughs) See, Jesus understood you don't learn faith in a classroom. You don't learn it except in life. And so he gave them the kind of exam we never give in seminary. We give the typical exam in which the student crams all of this stuff in his head 
and then goes into class and dumps it all on a piece of paper. The reason he does is he's worked out a little plan. I call it BUDAK, B-U-D-A-K. Five things you got to remember, that's how you remember. And he goes in BUDAK, boo, 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 BUDAK, writes it down fast so that he won't forget it. Two weeks he gets the paper back and there's a great big A on it. He's a scholar. Two days later, if his life depended on it, he couldn't pass the exam. (laughs) Jesus never gave an exam like that. I talked about faith. Let's go to the other side. And in the middle, we have this horrendous storm. And they're scared to death. Jesus says to us so often, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But when the crisis hits us, then we become the exception. By the way, if you never learn to hear then you will always blame other people. It's your parents who are the problem. It's the school that's the problem. It's the government that's the problem. Because you never heard what Jesus Christ said to you. And this is a classic case in point. I believe he is saying, if Christ is in your boat, you can be confident of two things. Number one, the boat will never sink. And secondly, the storm will not last forever. And that's why, my friends, the opposite of ignorance in the spiritual realm is not knowledge, it's obedience. And many times those of us in evangelical circles know so much about the Word of God But we've really heard so little of the Word of God that it has not really changed my life. And that's why Jesus said to his disciples, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I tell you? The implication being, stop calling me Lord or start doing what I tell you. That's why the Spirit of God is etched on my heart. The words of Mary to the servants in John 2, when she said, whatever he, Jesus, says to you, do it. There's a second lesson that I believe we need to learn, and that is when Jesus permits storms in your life, they are always designed with a purpose. And the question in the exam would be, what is Christ doing? I love that passage in James chapter 1, where he says, count it all joy when you fall so as to be completely surrounded with all kinds of tests and problems. You say, how strange. 
not strange, supernatural. Peter said, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. What a privilege it is to be so much the object of God's love. So desirous to fulfill his purpose in you that he allows things to come into your life. And the reason he says count it all joy is it develops endurance. He goes on to say, don't throw in the towel. Don't perform an abortion upon what God is doing in your life. Allow it to go full term because when it finally is developed, you will be the attractive one in your community, in your office, in your school, who incarnates Jesus Christ before others. God always tests in order that we might grow. And that's why in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, Continue to grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus knows, if you don't, that faith flourishes under fire. Because the Lord knows, knows what is best. He wants what is best, and he will do what is best. But you know what my personal observation is? I do not grow under comfortable circumstances. I only grow under tests. Because it's in the tests that the strength of your soul and the power of the Spirit are combined to make you a man or woman of God. Now we all want the product. The product is maturity. We're just not sure we enjoy the process. So we get up in the morning, we have our prayer time, we say, Lord, make me like your son. And the moment he goes to work, we shout, Lord, what happened? He says, nothing, I'm just answering your prayer. Is that all right? Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8. I am reminded, although he was a son, the son of God, yet learned he obedience by the things that he suffered. Do you think you are an exception? God is a fantastic educator, an incredible trainer. He knows exactly what you need in order to develop you like his son. This is why, in my own experience, I have learned never to ask the question, why? but always to ask the question, what? Lord, what do you want me to learn from this experience? And finally, there is a third credible lesson from this passage, and that is that faith and fear in the Christian life are always in conflict. And that answers the question, who is in control? 
Don't miss the question Jesus asked the disciples in verse 40. It has two parts to it. They're inseparably linked. Why is it that you, emphatic, of all people, are so afraid? In effect, if the boat goes down, then Jesus goes down with it. What if Jesus is in your boat? You're not going down. You're ultimately going up. And no matter what happens in your life, it will redound to God's wonderful honor and glory. Because you learn that faith always overcomes fear. And fear always eliminates faith. So the only option to the believer is fear or faith. You're either going to hold up or you're going to fold up. Let's listen to a part of Jesus' message to his disciples in that Mark 4 passage. He is teaching them by the water, and he gives a series of parables. And in verse 13, he gives the interpretation when he says, don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? And he tells the story, you know it familiarly. There is the seed that falls by the wayside. There is the seed that falls in rocky places. There is the seed that falls and is choked by the thorns. But the one all of us want to emulate our life after is the seed which is planted and produces good fruit because it's placed in good ground. Fascinating thing about this parable is the only element of commonality is the seed. The soils. They are all ground, but they are different kinds. It's the same sower, it's the same seed, but the soil is the variable. And good soil demands three things in this passage. It demands hearing. It demands accepting. And it demands producing. Some 30, some 60, some 100. Did you ever ask yourself the question, where did the fertilizer go? Obviously, It must have been focused on the good ground. And it produces that kind of distinctive fruit. And it answers the question, who is in control? Let me ask you, is your life all about Christ or is it all about you? The difference will be the difference in the kind of food you produce. Because a proper view of God brings everything into focus. And that's why I teach my students the size of your God determines the size of everything in your life. And the larger the Lord becomes, the smaller you become. And isn't that the truth we learned from John the Baptist when he said, He, Christ, must increase and I 
must decrease. As he grows larger, I grow smaller. And in my smallness, God is able to take me and multiply himself through me to accomplish his ultimate purpose. Who is in control of my life? Who is in control of your life? And the answer ultimately is the sovereign God. He's not biting his fingernails regarding the outcome. He doesn't get up in the morning and read the Chicago Tribune to find out how things are coming out. He does not experience any surprises. He never says, oops. And he will never accept counterfeit. The answer to your problem is a person. And there's somebody out in the 17th row saying, but you don't know my problem. I say, no, but you don't know the person. And your problem is not so great that he's unable to handle it. It's not so small that he doesn't care and is not concerned about him. That's why the disciples, I think in this passage, are taking great giant steps in their faith. And when they ask the penetrating question of verse 41, you see them move to a new spiritual level. What kind of a person is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. In their greatest area of expertise, they did not have the answer. But Christ did. A number of years ago, I had the privilege of being mentored by Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, my hometown, and who was probably one of the greatest Bible teachers of the last generation. He was an alumnus of Princeton Theological Seminary, which at that point in time was unusually strong in the Word of God, in evangelicalism, we would call it today. And he became an alumnus. And he was invited to come back to preach on the campus in what was called Miller Chapel. And as Barnhouse stood to speak, Dr. Robert Dick Wilson, his favorite professor, brilliant linguist, showed up sitting right up in the front row. He just about had a coronary when he looked over the pulpit, and here is Wilson sitting right in front of him. Who wouldn't be fearful under conditions like this? And at the close of the message, Dr. Wilson approached Barnhouse and announced, if you come back to preach again, 
I will not be here. And Barnhouse collapsed on the inside. He said to me, I'll never forget the experience, Howie. I'm asking myself, how did I fail? Was my theology wrong? Did I have errors in my Greek and Hebrew explanations of the passage? And so he said, why did I fail? And Wilson said, oh, you didn't fail. He said, I only come to hear a former student once. I only want to know if he's a big gutter or a little gutter. And then I know how his ministry will be. And when his former student asked for an explanation, Wilson answered, some men have a little God. And they're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles, can't take care of the inspiration and transmission of the scripture. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little God. And I call them little godders. There are others who have a great God, Wilson continued. He speaks and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of those that fear him. And you are a big gutter. And God will bless your ministry. He paused for a moment, smiled, and walked out. And Barnhouse said, I breathed a sigh of relief. <laughs> and I would ask you, as I ask myself every day, the same question. Are you a big godder? Or are you a little godder? When you get in the crises of your life, what happens? I had no idea what God would choose me to go through. My dear wife and I lost two children, our oldest daughter, and we lost my son's wife through breast cancer, seven agonizing years with that disease. About six years ago, I got cancer, and it just appeared to be a little spot about that large right here on the side of my head. I went to my close friend. He said, let's biopsy it. And when I went for the final surgery, I discovered what he called a Texas-sized cancer. It took them eight and a half hours to fill up the hole on the side of my head. But at that time, it never went as close to my ear to affect my hearing. It never went as close to my eyes to affect my seeing. Never went as close to my brain to affect my thinking. My students have a different point of view. <laughs> And I can still remember the night in the hospital when my closest friend, the surgeon, a man of God and a brilliant surgeon, walked in and said, Howie, we have no idea of the outcome of this. We obviously hope for the best, but you could lose your hearing, you could lose your seeing. This could be the end of the trolley line 
for your ministry. And after we had a word of prayer together, he left. And my wonderful wife, Jean, and I sat on the edge of a bed. And I said to her, sweetheart, we spend all of our life teaching students and people that God is sovereign. Now we have an opportunity to experience it firsthand. I think I had the best sleep I've ever had in my life with no medicine. And the next day, they performed the surgery. And all of us rejoiced until August the 5th of this year, when I was having rather severe trouble with my right eye, an ophthalmologist went to work on it, did everything that was humanly possible, last resort, sewed my eyes shut so that the problem within would get solved. It did solve the problem, but not the ultimate one. And Jean and I went on to this doctor's office, a specialist, a super specialist in a very restricted area of eye surgery. And he said, Howie, I hate to tell you, but we're going to have to take out your eye. The cancer has apparently returned, and it's inundated all of the muscle that each of you has behind each eye that totally controls your eye. And he said, we can't separate it. So if we take that out, you will lose your eye. If we don't take it out, you will lose your life. You know, I like somebody who explains it to me. <laughs> I mean, it's your choice, you know, your life or your eye. I mean, you don't spend a lot of time saying, oh, that's a rough one. I've had the best opportunity, I wish you would pray with me, that my surgeon would come to Christ. Because just the other day he said to my ophthalmologist, what is it about this guy? He said, I sat directly before him and his wife and said, we're going to remove your right eye. And I have never had a patient who accepted that severe knowledge. And I said, there's something different about this guy. You know what the difference is. Hopefully he's going to come to know what the difference is. I don't know what you have ahead of you any more than I know what is ahead of me. But I know the God who lives within me. And I know that he's called me by his grace. And as long as he wants me to continue to serve him, I will do that until he takes me home. But I am firmly convinced I spend a lot of time around lost people it's how I've continued teaching for 54 years in a Christian institution. 
For me, I don't know about you, I get to be around some hells and dams to be convinced this is alive. And God has brought into my life lots of lost people. It keeps my Gillette edge. (laughs) I'm teaching seminary students. But I'll tell you what I'm finding. The average person in our society is not asking the question, is this true? They are asking the question, does it work? And when we come to the place where as evangelicals we've got more divorces in our churches than we have in the secular culture, percentage-wise. And when people hear us talk all of these wonderful things about the Lord Jesus and about salvation, they're asking, does it really work? What happens when you lose your wife, your husband, your child? What happens when you have a doctor say to you, I cannot solve your problem? And then they watch for whether you are a good listener of the word. Did you hear it? Did you hear what God said? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. They are looking to you and to me to find out how do you cope with the problems of real life? And I am convinced the answer to the question that we've had up all week Who is God? Needs to be made extremely personal to you and me. Who is your God? Shall we pray? Father, what an incredible privilege to have the Word of God and the Spirit of God to be our instructor, our enabler, and to take the truth of the revealed scriptures and so weave it into the fabric of our life that we are never the same again. Father, we long, we hunger for the kind of righteousness that demonstrates to a world that God is alive and he's at home in human hearts that trust him. So I thank you for these, my friends, men and women of God, seeking to penetrate our lost society with the power of the gospel. May we so incarnate it that people will never be the same again without being compelled to ask, who is this person? And we ask in Christ's wonderful name, with thanksgiving, amen. 
You've been listening to Howard Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.